Well, good morning, church. So good to see that you survived. So, anybody still without power? Man, of course. Of course that would be for you, Karen. Um, man, it, like, this is one of those things where it's like when we moved down here from Minnesota, this was not at all on my radar <laughs> to expect this weather. And it seemed to have happened every year. So I don't know if you guys remember, but like I was told, yeah, it snows or it gets cold every five years, 10 years. Come, come on. Liars, exactly. Um, anywho, but like in all seriousness, if you do still like have needs, like like for instance, if you're not able to, um, I, I'm, I'm throwing this out there without even talking to my staff about this. They're like, "What is Brandon doing?" Um, if there, if you have needs, and if there's anything we can do to rally some people in our church or even some of our staff to come out, cut branches, move things, let us know. We want to be able to be the body of Christ and serve. Or even if you know there's maybe some neighbors who maybe aren't well off or able to do that, let's let's show the love of Christ tangibly. So just let us know, and we'll try to rally the troops on that. Um, so before we get into the message, I want to encourage you first and foremost, turn to John chapter 4. We're going to be in John chapter 4 as we wrap up this series um, called The Table is Set. I trust and hope that this series has been encouraging, has been a blessing, and has been a challenge for you. And I believe that this message this morning is going to be, if we have ears to hear and eyes to see and we're willing to receive it, it will be a transformative message for us as a church. But I also want to let you know just incredibly how excited I am for next Sunday. Okay? Next Sunday, we're starting a whole new series um, called Strong in Grace. And we're going to be going through 2 Timothy together as a church. Okay? And so here's a few things I want you to be aware of and I want you to do. On your way out, there's tables on the sides and tables in the back. We have two resources for you. Okay? First, is this kind of like devotional small group guide. We are asking all of our small groups to journey with us in this time of being in 2 Timothy. And also we bought for you um, a 2 Timothy. It's actually, you get a few extra bonuses with it. You get first and 2 Timothy and Titus. It's a scriptural journal, okay? So you're going to have the passage of 2 Timothy in here and space to write notes and to journal. So I want to encourage you, grab one of these and every Sunday that you're here as we're going through 2 Timothy, bring this with you, okay? So that way you have this as a resource. This series is going to be deeply impactful for us as a church because how do we live faithfully in a time, in a culture that is becoming more and more anti-Christian. One of the statements in 2 Timothy is, all the more as the end draws near. Well, we are 2,000 re years removed from that, so the end is closer today than it was then. How do we live faithfully in Jesus? But also realizing that we need every generation to reach every generation. We are a church that is multi-generational. And what we're going to see in 2 Timothy is this beautiful aspect of multi-generational discipleship that is vital for the church. And it's vital for our church today to take intentional steps in being one who's willing to invest their life into another person so that that person can say to the one they're discipling, Jesus is worth it. And we can be 
in a congregation like this and look at each other, be like, I am who I am, not only because of Jesus, but also because of him or her. That is powerful. And that leads right into exactly what we're going to be talking about this morning. So would you join me in prayer as we ask the Holy Spirit to be our teacher this morning. Lord, I come to you in humility, coming in a posture of weakness. My heart and my brain feel scattered. It feels pulled. There are items on my to-do list that should have been checked off three weeks ago that feel pressing. Lord, we all come with issues and emotions and relationships in our life that are like bearing just burdens or anxiety or also joy. So Lord, we just ask that you would speak to us individually. Lord, I ask that you would do something in our hearts. God, would you begin to take the, the foundation of what you're doing, of building a discipleship movement here through your church, would you take it further? God, I ask that this morning you would open eyes, you would open ears, you would soften hearts. Lord, I ask that where my words fall short, your spirit is sufficient. We're not here to listen to me. We're here to hear from you. So, Lord, would you speak? In Christ's name, amen. Food. I love me some food. I do. Like, I, I was going to have as a good sermon prop, I was going to buy a, a, a smorgasbord of barbecue and just lay it up here. But I was just like, one, no one's going to listen. Right? Like, it's just not going to happen. And there's no way I'm going to get through this message without being tempted to eat it. Like, I love food probably more than I should. And you can't talk about coming to a table without thinking about food. And you know what happens when you're hungry. Right? Besides you get hangry and you can't get there, but like you begin to crave certain types of food. For me, my typical cravings is red meat. All sorts. It doesn't matter. Red meat. You got to have red meat. Either a great burger or a good old-fashioned Texas barbecue brisket matched with some french fries, preferably from Chick-fil-A with Chick-fil-A sauce, matched with Torchy's queso with extra Diablo sauce, matched with Diet Coke to wash it all down. And I am going to sell a new brand new book series on a heart-healthy diet. Like, that's my craving. If you were to go, what do you long for when you're hungry? That's it guaranteed all the time. Now, it's so bad. Like our small group, uh, uh, we met at a friend's house this past Sunday and uh, he had a bonfire out there and he was burning post oak. And as I smelt the oak, honest to goodness, I immediately smelt brisket. And I, my mouth started to salivate. I'm like, this is kind of pathetic. Like I smell burning wood, I think brisket. Like, what do you crave? What are your typical cravings? Real quick, turn to your neighbor, your top three. Go. You all have it. You all have it. Now, I very much know my time for preaching is now like getting shorter. Because like you're probably going to get up and walk out anytime soon. But... 
I did a, I was just doing some research, and I was like, what are the top cravings in America? And it's really not a surprise. Like, the top one is anything that would be considered a baked sweet, like pastries, donuts, can I get an amen? Cakes, candy, pies, and then spicy foods, then salty, then fatty, then caffeine, which I thought was fascinating. Crunchy, crispy, chocolate, soft-filling starches, ice cream. I mean, nobody, nobody craves carrots, <laughs> celery. And like, if you say you do, you are a liar. Like my, like my friend from up north, Pastor Chad, who was here preaching back in December, like that dude is a rabbit. Like he literally, he says he craves carrots and celery. Like, and I'm like, no, you're just doing it because you're, you're conscious of your diet. I was like, nobody, nobody craves that. Give me a break. Maybe you do. All right, whatever. But there's all sorts of things that cause cravings. Physical cravings like due to blood sugar or even like the dopamine center, the reward center, or certain foods that trigger that. And all of a sudden our brains start to connect. If I get this food, I'll feel this good. There's mental cravings. How many of you stress eat? Don't raise your hands. Right? Like, or boredom. You just graze because you're bored. You don't know what else to do. Like, we, we eat when we're joyful, happy, all sorts of things. And then there's, like, behavioral cravings, like, due to in an environment. If you walk into a donut place, you will probably crave donuts. Right? Like, all of these things. Like, we have deep cravings. And cravings are powerful. They're strong. They absolutely motivate us and dictate kind of what we do in a lot of ways. It's hard to retrain your cravings, isn't it? It's possible, even though it feels impossible. Like, if you ever tried a diet and you did 10 weeks you were spot on, and they're like, okay, now that this diet is all over, you got to sustain this diet, right? That's where it gets hard. The consistency, the discipline, the retraining and the renewing and the rewiring of our appetites. Now think about it, okay? What was the weirdest thing you ever done to satisfy a craving? Weirdest thing. Like, did you ever have a craving at like one in the morning and it was snowing out or icing out? And you're like, I gotta have this. And you're willing to go do it. We do things. They, they move us. Now, is it any wonder that when God uses phrases in the Bible, like hunger and thirst, that it starts to connect and resonate deeply with us because he's starting to speak of the deeper longings and cravings of our souls in our hearts. We all have spiritual heart soul, cravings, and longings. In fact, my favorite quote that I stumbled upon in this whole series, it's hilarious to me, but the more I thought about it, I'm like, this is kind of true. Every time one goes to the refrigerator, one is looking for God. <laughs> I was like, yeah, because we don't realize it. Why do we pursue what we pursue? And why does that ever satisfy because we are a bundle of appetites. We crave things. We're looking for that one thing that will finally fully and finally satisfy the longings and the cravings in our hearts and our souls. And that's where Jesus comes in. Because Jesus starts to say, I am the true bread. 
You eat my flesh. You participate with me. You will never hunger. I am the living water. You drink from me, my well. You drink my water. You will never thirst again. He's speaking to the deeper longings and cravings. And when we say yes to Jesus, it's all of a sudden some things start to change and happen almost like immediately and instantly to our appetites. It's like sooner or later, like the things that we crave of the world start to get lesser and lesser. And the things of God start to show up in different ways. Like all of a sudden we start to like crave or want to be with God and want to know God more. And all of a sudden you find yourself like craving, like I I want to be in God's word. I want to pray. I want to serve and I want to give. I want to embrace relationships and humility I want to tell people about the love that I have. I want to be quick to forgive as I have been forgiven. It's almost as if there's a different diet for one who follows Jesus. And that's what I want to talk about is exactly that. When you say yes, when you decide to follow Jesus, there is a different appetite or a different diet that should be part of your life. And it's going to take consistency. It's going to take a retraining. It's going to take a renewal as you continue to follow Jesus and continue to learn his ways and continue to see what is truly the food that satisfies our longings. We call this diet discipleship. That's what this ultimately is. It's a new way of living. It's a new plan, a new diet that has to be learned, has to be embraced, and it has to be worked out in your life. So this is the question I want us to start wrestling with. Because there is a significant difference between one who would just be a bandwagon, a consumer, or a spectator Christian... And one who says they follow Jesus. There's a significant difference. And it really all involves what your spiritual diet looks like. So far in this series, we've been talking about different tables. We've been talking about the first table that Jesus invites us to. He prepared a table before us. And the tables were significant because to be invited to a table means that you're welcomed, you're accepted, you belong here. And the fact that we're hearing that God prepared a table for us tells us that he loves us. Just as we are, not as we should be. And he loves us so much that he doesn't want us to stay just as we are. He knows that his love then propels us to be changed and transformed. And out of that table, we then moved like, I want to be with Jesus. And then we looked at two different tables as we start to follow him. Jesus started to get this reputation, as we talked about last week, that he's a glutton, he's a drunkard, and he's a friend of sinners. And as we looked at these two tables, Jesus was eating with people that caused great shock and disdain and anger and confusion and wonderment in the disciples as well as all the other people who were part of it, specifically the religious elite, the tax collector, the traitor, the one who basically gave up everything to be able to get what he wants. God, I don't need you, whatever. And then the woman who completely interrupted the dinner party with some Pharisees that acted in a scandalous way. And the disciples were absolutely surprised, no doubt, that Jesus allowed it to happen. 
this should cause us, like literally, this should be causing us to ask some questions. And this is the question. If I follow Jesus, if I consider myself a disciple of his, do I do this? Would I do this? Does this make me uncomfortable? Does this frustrate me? You see, to be a disciple of Jesus is ultimately to go where he's going and do what he's doing. And so if we say, I follow Jesus, are you at these tables? That is a significant question. And that's why we need to look at this text this morning. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Now, if you've been in church culture for some time, you immediately know this is the story of the woman at the well. But I want you to hear this story and understand this story from a different perspective. We're going to be looking at it from the disciples' perspective. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour, or high noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, on Monday morning, when I start my prep for the message coming on the following Sunday, the first thing I do is I like to take the text and I just like to read it and pray over it and start to ask the Holy Spirit, like, what, what is on your heart? Like, what do you want to show me? What do you want to challenge me on, convict me on? Is there anything that is like kind of popping out and standing out? And, and of course, I preached this passage numerous times. And so, like, something caught me off guard that I didn't anticipate, and it was the word disciples. And that's why I'm saying, like, I want us to see this passage from a different lens. I find it fascinating that in these first eight verses, the label or the title, disciples, shows up three times. Now, in that original context, in that audience, they would have understood what a disciple is. I'm asking the question, do we? Like, do we know what a disciple is? And that's where I'm going, man, we need to go all the way back to the basics. And before we unpack the rest of this story, I want us to understand what discipleship looks like. What exactly is a disciple? In its simplest form, a disciple is a learner, is a student who's... Like one of their chief virtues as a student is teachability. Willing to put aside their presuppositions and their paradigms and their own will to learn to embrace, accept, and change into the new way, into the new teaching. Not only that, to be a disciple, one can't just simply choose to be a disciple. They have to be invited into this relationship. So a rabbi would say, hey, 
I want to invite you to be my disciple. And that individual would have to choose yes or no. It's the same thing as we look with Jesus. Because these disciples understand that if a rabbi or a teacher calls you to follow him, the mandate is you will eventually live the way I live because you've seen the way I lived. And when I send you out, you will teach what I've been teaching. This is the same method that Jesus embraced to launch his discipleship movement, inviting people to follow him, to be with him, to where they eventually do what he does and says what he says. That's the heartbeat of discipleship. And if we look at the process in the Gospels of how Jesus does this, it's fascinating, okay? First, he starts calling people to come and see. Maybe they're not ready per se to follow Jesus as a disciple. He's just like, hey, just come check me out. Come, come listen, come observe what's happening. Just come and see. And then when people are ready to take that next step, he knows when, he lays it out. Come and follow me. Those are different because the follow me at this point is be my disciple. And to be a disciple means he will eventually free you from the old ways to live in the new ways. And he even goes, I am going to give you a new purpose. I am going to define your life. So this relationship from the beginning is about becoming a fisher of people. When you say yes to following Jesus, the Holy Spirit immediately is going to go, awesome. Their heart's there. Now I'm going to turn them into a disciple maker. That's the Spirit's desire inside of you. And I think that's why a lot of us miss out on the Christian experience is because we fight that. We would rather it just to be me and Jesus. Me and my issues. Just, just me and Jesus, my stuff, my time. I don't want to push it on nobody. But the Holy Spirit's going to keep leaning on you. Because when you follow him, he wants to make you into a fisher of people. And then he moves on to the next part. So you start to understand as you're with him, he's like, listen, I want you to be with me, be close with me, interact. There's intimacy to this. See how I pray. See how I interact with people. Ask questions. Totally okay. Come and learn these new things. Be with me. And then there's this impetus that's connected to it. I want you to be with me because I'm going to send you out. Jesus has every intention and every desire to send you out. So when you continue to follow this progression, he sends out the 12 on a little internship. I give you authority to cast out demons, heal the sick, raise the dead, and preach my message. Can you imagine the disciples in that moment? You, what? Yeah, Jesus is like, yeah, go. You're saying we're not just going to sit around this table and talk about Jesus stuff? No, I want you to go out and do the Jesus stuff. Then he sends out the 72. And then they all come back and Jesus starts to teach, like, this is what it's all about. Love God, love your neighbor. And then it moves into the progression of, here's the mandate. As I go to heaven, go now into all of the world and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that I've taught you. Oh, and then the next step, Wait for the Holy Spirit, because that's the only way you can do this. 
You see, to be a disciple is to be a student. And he has very intentional steps for you in your life. It's not just for you and Jesus. It's for you to go. To learn a new way of living. To learn a new diet. And yes, you abide in Jesus. Yes, you stay in God's word and you pray. Yes, you get into community. Yes, you practice repentance. Yes, you practice confession. And yes, you live with your eyes open. But friends, the part that we miss often in the church is the mandate to go make disciples. And Jesus in this story is going to say, here's the significant food of a disciple. Okay? That's what we're going to see. So, tension, verse 4. He had to pass through Samaria. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. This is extremely loaded. Just like the tension and the, the anger and the confusion that the disciples would have felt while they dined with Matthew the tax collector. The same feelings they would have had when that woman came in last week and did what she did in the presence of the religious. They would have had the same feeling in this moment. I see this playing out this way. They're leaving and Jesus is like, hey, we need to go to this place and we need to go through Samaria. To which the, the disciples are like, uh, Jesus, you know there's a... a there's a different path. Yeah, it might take like twice as long, but we typically go around Samaria. We'll cross the Jordan twice, and that way we don't have to bother with these Samaritans. What's the deal here? I'm going to spend a little bit of time because I want us to feel this. The quarrel between Jews and Samaritans is a 400-year-old feud. And at this point in Jesus' life, in this text, this tension was smoldering. It was just a lot of angst and anger. You don't go into each other's hood. Like, you just don't do it. So the story is, back in 720 BC, the Assyrians captured the northern part of Israel, which is what we would call Samaria. They took them out, and then Assyria brought some people in, and next thing you know, the Samaritans, they started to interbreed with other people, to which then the, the tribe of Judah down below, the two tribes down there said, you no longer are worthy to be considered a Jew, because you are no longer racially pure. You have intermarried. You have polluted your bloodline. You are no longer part of the people of God. That's how they saw it. Because a little bit later in history, the southern kingdom where Jerusalem was, they got invaded. They got sent out to Babylon, and yet they stayed pure. They didn't intermarry and intermingle with other cultures. And so when they came back in Nehemiah and Zechariah, and when they were rebuilding the wall, the Samaritans came and said, let us help. And they're like, no, you no longer are part of our people. And that is what unleashed this hatred between these two groups. It was a racial issue, it was a religious issue, and it was a very, very tense political issue. Where do we worship? Who has, the right, who has the right doctrine? Who are the true people of God? It was tense. Jews, like listen to this. True statement. 
One of the rabbis said this, two nations my soul detests, and a third is not even a people. Those who live on the mountain of Samaria and the Philistines and that foolish people that live in Shechem, which is in Samaria. (laughs) Not only that, they said they had a popular prayer in those days. In Jesus' day, this was the prayer. Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. There's loving for you. Hey, guys, we're going through Samaria. What do you do as a disciple? They're a student. And the chief virtue of a student is teachability. I don't like this. I'm not comfortable with this. But since I follow him, I will follow him. (laughs) And they go to Samaria. They get to this well. Jesus is exhausted. He sits down at the well. It's high noon. It's just him and the disciples. And he says, hey, boys, I want you to go into the Samaritan town to go buy food. Now, I can easily imagine the conversation that the disciples had as they were journeying to the town. He's going to get us killed. Like, they're not, in, they're not in, like, Judea, right? They are now the enemy in the wrong part of the neighborhood. They're like, will they even sell us food? Look at the looks they're giving to us. Are we even going to be able to make it back? All of the fear. I can imagine them going, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this. So they get food. But all along, this phrase, Jesus had to go to Samaria, is extremely important for those of us who say we follow Jesus. Because in the Greek text, it actually speaks into this phrase, he absolutely had to. He absolutely had to, which tells us that this was the Holy Spirit's prompting. And we know that Jesus said often, I only do what the Father's doing. My Father's at work and I too am working. And so the Holy Spirit was saying, you need to go to Samaria. And Jesus is like, going to Samaria. He absolutely had to. And as the disciples walked away to go get food, a woman comes to the well, right? And we know the story. She had five husbands and all that kind of stuff. And Jesus awkwardly, you know, asked her this question, hey, can you give me a drink? To which she says, how can you, this is not her just being polite. She's a Samaritan. She knows all of this. How can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, especially a woman, for water? I mean, like high noon, nobody gets water at high noon. It's too hot. So Jesus is all alone with a woman of the city, cross-cultural issues, rumor mill, could blow up, and Jesus just leans in. Because Jesus is like, you. I came here for you. And he unleashes on her, shows her her heart. Tells her, like, yeah, you've been thirsting and longing for relationships, but you notice it doesn't satisfy. I'm living water. He says, it reveals things to her. And also she's like, yeah, I know the Messiah will tell us all things. And the last thing Jesus says to her is like, I am he. And she's just like, oh, you kidding me? Now let's pick up the story in verse 27. Remember, put yourself in the shoes of the disciple. Just then, the disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? (laughs) Someone's with Jesus, guys. Who is that? 
And as they get closer and closer, like, it's a woman. What's he doing? But they have also now experienced Jesus doing all sorts of unconventional things. So they have a little bit of trust. You go, okay, Jesus knows what he's doing here. But it's fascinating to me that like they were so embarrassed that they couldn't even ask a question. They didn't know what to do. And they were just like, they have all sorts of emotions stirring up inside of them. Like, why are you talking with her? Why are you doing these things? What is she doing? All this kind of stuff. But they were beginning to know him because they were following him. And they knew that we shouldn't be questioning his motives. This is an amazing step towards discipleship where you eventually learn to say, it's not for me to always question the actions and demands of Jesus because my prejudices and my stereotypes and conventions have to go. Then out of nowhere, she just abruptly leaves her water jar, goes running to the village. And then, this is, this is humor, in my opinion, verse 31. Meanwhile, as she's leaving, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Eat. I mean, I can't blame him, nor could you. Jesus is famished. He's exhausted. He sent them away to go eat, and they were worried for his well-being. Maybe they were like, hey, we did this. Please honor what we did. Who knows? But I just think it was just a simple gesture. But then Jesus' reply completely catches them off guard. Verse 32, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. What? Is she going to get you something? Like, like, like seriously, like, what? They, they, they have no idea. They're blind. They're only seeing earthly things. They're like, did, did, someone, did someone beat us? Like, what? Are you fasting? Like, what's going on? They don't know. And that's why I love it. It's like in verse 33, disciples are saying to another, like, has someone brought him something to eat? Jesus is saying to them, I have something that you don't have yet. I see something that you don't see yet. He's setting them up for a significant lesson that would come to shape how they live their lives as a follower of Jesus. And it ought to do the same for us. The I and the you in this statement is emphatic, stressing that they need to pay attention to what's unfolding in their midst. They need to realize that there's a new food, a new food group in the diet of being a disciple. Jesus isn't concerned about his physical hunger in this moment. He's so caught up in what's happening in the woman's heart, so caught up in what's potentially happening in this village, that he's laying aside his own personal needs for the present, which is even more satisfying to do the will of God. And so I started thinking about that. It's like in other ways, uh, another way of saying it, it's like Jesus is feasting on what God is doing in that woman's life. This is more satisfying, more fulfilling than anything else, right? I can eat later, but this is now. I can deny myself for later, but this, God is doing something now. Jesus could have simply like, hey, thanks guys, and just taken a a bite out of courtesy, right? Think about it. He could have been like, thank you guys, you know, done. Hey, watch this, watch what's coming. He doesn't even do it. He just completely ignores it. That's because he's trying to teach them something. And this is it. Verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me 
and to accomplish his work. My food is to do the will of the Father and to finish it. Yes, Jesus is the true bread of life. Yes, he is the living water. Absolutely. That's what frees our soul from all of the cravings and longings in this world. But as a follower of Jesus, we need to learn to eat the food that Jesus loved to eat. The will of the Father. To work where he's working. And friends, it often involves people. Jesus said, as I've been sent, so I send you. This is the heartbeat of being a disciple. He will lead you to these moments. What will you do? What diet will you choose to continue to eat? It's almost as if Jesus is saying, guys, look, dinner is served right here. Look, I love it. Verse 35 do you guys not say there are yet four months and then comes to harvest? Like he's playing with this law of sowing and reaping. You sow seed, you sow seed and you tend for it and eventually it will come to fruition. The harvest is there. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. Just look and see that the fields are white for harvest. Dinner is served. This is where my father's at work and this is more satisfying than this bread and sardine or whatever it is that you brought. This, deny yourself for this. Guys, see it. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you've entered into their labor. God is at work to this moment. And our job as a disciple is to be with Jesus, to be able to be attuned to his spirit's working and his spirit's prompting. And when we start to feel that nudge to go talk to that person, to go pray for that person, to go share Jesus with that person, to invest your life into that person, that is God's food for you. And to deny that food, to not have that food part of your diet in following Jesus is to stunt your growth. This is important. And this is why a lot of churches look stagnant, are dead, and lifeless. Is because, yeah, we come to gather. Yeah, we come to sing. Yeah, we do all of these things but we fail short or we, we fall short on this part of going. And here's the deal. I'm convinced it's because in typical Jesus fashion, he goes to people and he calls us to interact with people that we may not want to interact with. Or we just don't want to give up our time. Or we don't want to pay them, or we don't want to. You see, to follow Jesus means go where he's going and do what he's doing. The harvest is urgent. Look up. Look 
up. Look beyond earthly things. See what's out there. People have sowed seeds. Sometimes you may be doing the doing it. You may not reap. But listen, God is at work in people's lives. And we are able to reap what's been sowed. Doing the will of God is significant to being a disciple. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 through 3, addressing the church in Corinth, says something that's pretty harsh. Because they're dealing with conflict, thinking through an earthly lens, like, hey, I follow Apollos, I follow this person, and there's conflict and division. And Paul's like, man, I could only feed you milk, which means like you're still a newborn baby. Like I wanted to feed you meat, which is why you shouldn't know right? Feed you meat, <laughs> sorry, feed you meat, but you weren't ready for it because you're still acting earthly. Some of us need just to be able to see and admit that maybe we're consumer, spectator Christians, still stuck consuming milk when you know the Spirit is calling you to eat meat. Following Jesus, friends, will inevitably lead you to a well in Samaria. It will eventually lead you to talk to that neighbor across the street. It will eventually lead you to want to talk to that coworker, that friend, that classmate. Because that's what the Holy Spirit is about. The Holy Spirit was given us to empower us to be his witness. So, we have to learn what the disciples learned. They had to learn to be, to not be content with going around Samaria. They had to learn to not be content with avoiding people. They had to learn that to avoid people, to not go through Samaria, to not go to the tax collector, to not interact with sinners, should break them, should cause them to repent. Never get comfortable with that. Never be okay with saying tomorrow. Tomorrow I'll do it. Tomorrow I'll get to it. And yes, I understand there's a process. I understand that there's relationships and timing and God opening the door 100%. But you know the difference between intentionally moving towards someone and actively ignoring someone. If you are a follower of Jesus, I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit is all about making you look like Jesus. So do you go to those tables that Jesus went to? Or, or do you go around Samaria? So what we're going to do for the rest of our time together is we're going to be asking ourselves the question, like how do I retrain my cravings to, to put aside my own will, to put aside my own desires, put aside my own comfort, and to crave what it is that God wants. To be about what he's doing. And this is what I want us to just wrestle with. If you say you love Jesus, I'm, I'm meaning to ruffle your feathers a little bit here, okay? If you say you love Jesus. Does your heart break over people the way Jesus' heart broke?
Because there's another harvest story. And coincidentally, it comes on the heels of the table with Matthew. Matthew 9, 35. And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel, healing every disease. And when he saw the crowds, when he looked up and he saw people, he had compassion for them, moved for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, because his heart is overwhelmed and broken over the circumstance, he says, the harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. He's like trying to like, like say, hey guys, you are the laborers. Jo- join me. Because if you say you love me, you'll do what I say. Guys, harvest is plentiful. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. Like pray intensely, passionately, pleading, begging for God to send people out into the harvest. If we say we love Jesus, what does our prayer life look like? Who are we praying for? What are we praying for? I do love Jesus. And I hope that's what you're saying. I do love Jesus. How do I begin to lift my eyes and see the harvest? First, be with him. Be with him. He's called you to be with him. Get in the word individually, together, pray, see him, look at what he does, listen to what he says, be with him. But not only that, a few weeks ago, we encouraged you to write names on a card of people who don't know Jesus that you're praying for. And some of you weren't here for that, which is totally okay. But we were praying for people who don't know Jesus. You need to remind yourself that at one point, your name was on someone's card. Your name was on Jesus' radar. And when you remember that message of hope and grace, how cannot the love of Christ compel us forward? So we're gonna move into a time of communion, but before we do, the worship team is going to lead us in a song, but during this song, they're going to just sing over you. But I want you just to reflect your heart. What is my diet? What is my spiritual diet? How am I following Jesus? If I say I love him, do I do what he's doing? Am I going where he's going? I trust that the Spirit will convict and reveal but let's just take a moment together and just reflect and do work with the Holy Spirit. And after a moment, I'll come up and I'll lead us in a time of communion.
Here's how we're going to do communion. We're going to encourage you to come on up, grab the elements, but also there's stacks of those cards of the names that you all written down. Grab one of them and take it with you to see it. So as you come, grab the communion elements and grab one of the cards. And as you go through this time, I'll lead us, but this is a moment between you and the Lord so feel free to come on up. The worship team's going to be playing music in the background. And if you're not able to get up, we have people on the sides that will also give you the elements.
as you hold the communion elements in your hand, the wafer that represents the body of Christ and the juice that represents the blood of Christ. This was the price that Jesus paid so that you can have a seat at his table. Just let that sink in. If you ever question the love of God, just think about the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. Paul says, what I've received from the Lord, I also deliver to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take together. In the same way, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take together. The next verse is potent. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you you proclaim the Lord's death. And what we've been seeing in all of these stories about the table is not God so loving the world in theory, but God loving the world in action. And the disciples, the original They caught that, minus one. So how do we live with our eyes up? If we say we love Jesus, we be with him. We remember what he's done on our behalf. But secondly, we pray. We pray for others. We move towards others. And what I want us to do before we conclude the service this morning even in the classic, those names on those cards, even if we ran out of cards, there's people in your life that I know don't know Jesus. We're going to pray for them. And if you don't know what to pray, I oftentimes just think it this way. We pray for God to open doors, to open hearts, and to open mouths. So you can either pray just you and the Lord, or if you like to talk and pray with other people, you can feel free to pray with someone near you. But let's just spend this moment intentionally praying for these names. These are real people, real souls apart from Jesus. Let's pray to the Lord of the harvest. And after a moment or two, I'll conclude and I'll wrap us up in prayer.
We pray this. We lift these names up to you, Jesus, in your name. And all God's people said, amen. So we be with Jesus and we pray. But here's the last thing I want to say to you. As you walk out of here, live with your eyes up. Lift up your eyes and see the harvest. Lord, I pray for us as a church that you would continue to move in powerful ways. Lord, we entrust everything we do to you. Holy Spirit, would you lead, would you convict, would you encourage? Lord, we pray for these names, these individuals, these lost sons and daughters. We pray that you would lead them home. We pray that seeds will be sown and we can pray in confidence that the fact that their names are written down tells us that you're already at work. So Lord, we pray for the harvest. We pray that they would come to know you as the true and living God, the source of all life. Lord, would you use us? Would we be a praying church for the harvest? Would we be a people who refuse to go around Samaria, but through Samaria and to desire to eat your food, your Father's will. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.